name is Scott. I'm lead pastor here at First Christian Church. Uh, we are really glad you're here for worship with us this morning. Um, whether this is your 700th time or your first time, um, we're glad you're here to worship with us here at First Christian. Let's go ahead and get it out of the way for those of you who have been here for a little while. Yes, I have new glasses. <laughs> in, case, in case you're sitting there and you can't quite place what looks different, um, it's apparently not the fact that I've lost 10 pounds in two weeks. Thank you very much for noticing. It's these things right here that you're looking at. They're different than they've been for the last 15 years. Um, so go ahead and get a good look at them. Let them distract yourself with them now. Get over the initial shock. And then please feel quite free uh, to keep your optometric wisdom uh, to yourself. Cool. <laughs> one would think one would think that a pastor getting new glasses wouldn't be a big deal, right? You wouldn't think that'd be a big deal, but apparently one can be wrong. <laughs> My five year old agrees with you, it's funny. Um, if you're a pastor, just never change anything about your external appearance ever, okay? That's the lesson here. I had uh, people with all sorts of responses like, I like your new chemistry glasses or chemistry lab glasses. They look like safety goggles. Somebody in between the service said, I saw it at the Y the other day. I thought, oh, he's got some sort of workout glasses on. <laughs> no, I do not have workout glasses. You think I'm making too big a deal of this. I walk in, first thing, Two of my three kids, who shall remain nameless, but hint, red hair and five years old. So those two kids, they both responded as I came in for the first time like I was some alien from a different planet. I don't even know who you are anymore. The redhead said, first words out of his mouth, not a fan. My apologies for uprooting your entire world, son, <laughs> with a new pair of glasses. All right, we've had our fun. Let's talk about Jesus in the Bible, huh? How about that? Uh, today is our last week of four in a series we've called uh, Burned, where we expose and we address uh, the wounds experienced from church hurt. Uh, maybe that we've experienced from other believers, maybe that we've experienced from church leaders, um, so apparently I've hurt some people with my new glasses. I apologize. They have been quite the spectacle. I promise that's the last one. I didn't use that first service, but thank you for actually laughing at my dumb joke. <clears throat> hey, if you need a Bible today or a study guide for this series, uh, just slip up your hand. We've got guest concessions people here, guest services people um, with Bibles if you need one. Study guide for the series, that's what we use as our curriculum uh, for interacting with the sermons, applying it to our lives throughout the week. Um, they also have bulletins. If you didn't get a bulletin on the way in um, to tell you what's going on here at FCC, why don't you go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, if you go about four-fifths of the way through the Bible, it's right after 1 Corinthians. That's where you'll find it. Um, if you need a Bible and you don't have one, take that Bible. It's yours. Put your name in it. Um, you can steal from us. We like to give away Bibles. We're going to be in chapter 5, verses 14 through 20. 
We're going to just focus on those verses today. Uh, the bulletin has a few extra verses. We're just going to focus on uh, 14 through 20. And we've got a lot of cool stuff to learn here. Uh, Bible-heavy Sunday today. Um, we learn about sort of the theological and biblical grounding uh, for how we are called to be uh, what Paul calls ministers of reconciliation. Um, it's a pretty loaded, cool term, um, new job description for believers who are alive in Christ. So uh, we're going to talk about where that comes from uh, and, and how that relates to uh, church hurt. I want to mention briefly before we read that passage and pray that we're going to be kicking off uh, our summer series next week. Um, it's called Risk, and it's all about how God does amazing things when our courage is met with his purpose. When he takes our courage and it meets with his mission and purpose, uh, God does exceedingly beyond um, what we hope or imagine, Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. So each Sunday, we're going to hear a story of someone in the scriptures who risked with courage to move the mission forward. And, and God met that faithfulness with his mission and moved, uh, moved that work forward because of their risk. So um, in case you um, may not be entirely aware of why we're doing that series right now, let me just kind of spell it out a little bit for you. We are um, we're in the middle of a transition as a church right now, of uh, beginning to look at doing what we do here in other locations as well, uh, multi-site satellite campuses, extension sites, whatever you want to call that. And so we're going to sort of take some corporate risk here soon um, because we're moving toward becoming a church that multiplies churches, a church that plants churches. Uh, we'll tell you more about that in the coming months um, we've been working on it for like two years. Um, and we've got a lot to tell you about in the coming months, especially in the fall. Uh, but we want to make sure we've got our heads and our hearts around this idea that God can do uh, amazing things when our corporate courage, when our corporate courage meets with his purposes. Um, so we're real excited about what that's going to look like for us. And so we're going to look in Scripture from week to week about stories of people who risked uh, individuals and, and, and corporate um, settings. So cool stuff. Let's read together 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, verses 14 through 20. And then we'll, uh, then we'll get into the text in just a moment after we pray. I don't have to take off my glasses to read. Yes, I have progressives on now. It says this, starting at verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old's passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Let's pray, friends.
Lord God, we, in the quiet of this moment, open our hearts to hear from you today. That we would follow your lead and say yes to your direction. Forgive us, Lord, for continuing um, to live like we know what satisfaction and peace and contentment look like apart from you. Give us, Lord, a vision for our lives that fits with what you've done in Jesus to make up for sin and to be a sacrifice and to be resurrected with power so that you would make people new. Lord, give us a vision for our lives that meets with that, that we would be ambassadors for the name of Jesus, that we would be uh, men and women and marriages and families aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents, that we would be a body of believers together that have a vision for moving your goodness and glory forward as we give ourselves in faith to you. Make us, Lord, as we think about these four weeks of church hurt, make us a place, Lord, uh, where the broken can find healing, where those who are tired can find rest, where those who are at the end of themselves can find hope. So that those who are enslaved would find freedom. And give us, Lord, the courage and the faith to say yes to your work in us. Uh, So that context would be something we create as your spirit moves through us. Give us that vision for our lives and for this church, we pray. In your son's name, amen. So the question we're asking today is how do we prevent burning people? In this series, we've been unpacking for the first three weeks things like hypocrisy and gossip. Uh, We talked about about how love is a a mixture of grace and truth in week one. Um, And so today we're just going to kind of try to answer this question. uh, How do we prevent, help prevent burning people? And and the the question for the day, I'm going to add a little Scott Wakefield at the end of it. Let me just say this. How do we prevent burning people when it comes to church by creating a context where the gospel message guides our interactions? I'm going to ask that question again since it's typical Scott Wakefield, all wrapped in one sentence kind of thing. How do we prevent, how do we help prevent burning and hurting people when it comes to church by creating a context where the gospel message guides our personal interactions? That question is important for us because a lot of people uh, all around us are dealing with church hurt, have been burned. Uh, Maybe you've been burned. I know I've been burned. Um, I I always like to say the people who are burned the most by church are those who stick around for it. So maybe you've been burned by Christians who were more worried perhaps about measuring externals and outward things than the condition of your heart internally. That can hurt because that's not supposed to happen here. Maybe you've been burned by Christians uh, perhaps who shamed you in a sort of a public way maybe uh, for something you did or said or maybe even for something you didn't do or say but a friend said or somebody in your family said and you got caught in the crossfire. Maybe you've been burned by Christians uh, who gossiped about you 
uh, people you thought were friends, uh, people who you trusted, uh, were actually saying something different about you behind your back. Maybe it goes so far as you've been uh, burned and hurt by people uh, who claim to follow Christ, who are abusive to you in some form or fashion, spiritually, uh, emotionally, uh, perhaps even physically or sexually. How do we create a context among us that the Spirit's work in us so that we can help prevent that kind of church hurt? We'll get there. (laughs) But we're going to talk a lot about some Bible along the way. So the question remains, put in your back pocket, we'll take it back later. How can we help prevent church hurt? We'll get there and answer that question in a bit. But we need to talk first about one of the main sources, before we jump into the text, we talk about one of the main sources of people getting burned in church. And this may not be your first thought about how church hurt happens or how people get burned in church uh, or, or how a context within a church becomes unhealthy enough that it becomes a place where people get easily hurt. But according to the scriptures and according to the wider context of Second Corinthians, one of the main sources of people getting burned in church is allowing false teachers to have a voice and not protecting the flock from unbiblical ideas. One of the main sources, main problems, perhaps the main source of church hurt is allowing false teachers to have a voice that they shouldn't have and not protecting the flock well. In week one of this series, we looked at 2 Corinthians, which helped us understand some of this wider context I'm alluding to. But we mentioned that the main reason the Corinthian church was experiencing church drama was because the leaders had allowed some people to infiltrate their ranks who were false teachers. And they soon found themselves allowing things like incest and adultery and infighting to happen and to to leave that going on in the congregation unchecked. So the church leaders weren't doing their job to do enough about that and a whole bunch of people within the church got hurt because of it makes sense right now if you've been in church a while um, and maybe you've heard bible teachers talk about false teachers false prophets you may have this sort of mental conception this idea of a false teacher as being some sort of ominous like scary openly defiant and devious person you may have that sort of thought about it um, as if they may like you know I don't know, quote from the Satanic Bible or um, that they look like the Grim Reaper. Um, Actually, false teachers are more dangerous than that. Jesus himself warns in Matthew 7, beware of false prophets because outwardly (laughs) they come to you in sheep's clothing. They look innocent. They seem nice. They may even be very nice to you. Sometimes be wary of people who are a little bit too nice. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. They look nice and innocent on the outside, but on the inside, Jesus says, inwardly they are ravenous wolves, hungry to devour the people of God. You can easily spot the grim reaper. It's a little harder to to spot a false teacher. So what's a false teacher? (laughs) Simply put, If you're taking notes, I'm just going to make this easy for you. A false teacher is someone who teaches wrong doctrine when it comes to the basic non-negotiables of the Christian faith. 
They just teach wrong doctrine when it comes to the basic non-negotiables of the Christian faith. And they deceive often in two particular ways. They teach that something wrong is okay, or they teach that something okay is wrong. It's both sides of that. False teachers don't just teach that, that something wrong is okay to do. That's kind, kind of easier to spot. They also teach that something that's okay to do is wrong. Some of y'all who grew up with legalism may have a new concept of false teaching you didn't have. On the other hand, people who say, who are libertines, as Paul talks about them in Galatians, and people who, who, who are saying anything and everything is okay, are also false teachers. They do this because they twist Scripture to fit their own experience instead of submitting their own experience to the truth of the Scriptures. So they don't look a certain way, but you'll know them by their fruit, Jesus says. So why does all this matter for 2 Corinthians 5? People were getting hurt in the church because false teachers were allowed to have a voice they shouldn't. So in 2 Corinthians 5 here, in 14 through 20, Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, who planted this church in Corinth, he gives some help. He's basically saying, okay, it's been ugly. There's been a lot of church drama. Uh, people have been hurt. Let's get back on track. So this is the section where he says, let's go, let's go ahead and start getting back on track. He's going to give us some help about what that looks like. And that's where we jump in. First thing he says is this, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. In contrast to the false teachers who are motivated by self, we are controlled, Paul says, by the love of Christ. This is a powerful idea that Paul starts off with here in verse 14. He says this, the love of Christ is what controls us. A few things to note here. Number one, it's very important to notice that Paul is not saying it is love for Christ that controls us, as if the love starts with us, but that it is love that comes from Christ that controls us. Paul is describing here a love that finds its source in Christ, a love that is modeled by Christ, a love that, that came from him. And he's describing that kind of thing as a love of Christ for us, not our love for Christ. And the word that Paul uses here, second thing to note here in verse 14, that's translated controls, uh, for some of your versions probably compels, it means to hold fast. To like have a real firm grip on something, to have a real firm grip on something so as to not let go of it and to keep that grip on that thing. So the love comes from Christ first. Second thing is that word controls there means um, that there's a firm grip. And so what he's saying there, what Paul is saying there is that Christ's love has such a firm grip on us that we are compelled by it. He has such a firm grip on us that we are compelled by it. In the wider context of the church drama that they've been experiencing because of the false teachers, Paul is saying that unlike false teachers who are controlled by self, we, Paul is saying, we are so taken by the love of Christ for us that we behave that way with others. That's the gist of the entire argument he's going to make throughout the rest of this passage. And we're going to simmer with how that works 
throughout this passage because it's really powerful to see how it comes from Christ through the cross, through resurrection to us, and he gives us that same ministry. So when he says the love of Christ controls us, it may sound sort of like, I don't like being controlled by anything. Like submit person who supposedly loves Jesus. The love of Christ controlling you is okay. You can trust that. Unlike yourself that got you in the place that needed his love in the first place. So Paul is saying here that Christ's love has such a grip on us that we are compelled by it. There's a good way to say this um, that I came across the Bible nerd named Murray J. Harris. I got into the Greek and he knows lots of things we don't. He says this. We're going to put this on screen now. Yes. Uh, Christ's love, he's describing this concept in verse 14 here. Christ's love is a compulsive force in the life of believers, a dominating power that effectively eradicates choice in that it leaves them no option but to live for Christ. When you are that taken by the love of God for you in Christ that met you when you were a sinner, that is something to which you respond, I have no other choice but to act the same way. That's the whole argument he's making here. The love of Christ controls us. Now, he gives some detail about how that works and how we get there and why that's the case. Keep unpacking verses 14 and 15. The love of Christ, the love from Christ, controls us. Here's why. Because we have concluded this. This is our conviction, in a sense, Paul says, that one has died for all, which means that Christ's sacrifice was enough to make up for the whole sin, for, for the sins of the whole world. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. This is typical Paul, complex argumentation wrapped up in a few words. Um, so he's using shorthand here, uh, and without getting into the complexities of it, he's saying that the love of Christ controls us because his work on the cross was motivated by a desire from the heart of God to save all. Listen to what I'm saying and not to what I'm not. The desire, the heart of God is for all people. And the work of Christ on the cross is sufficient to save all. That doesn't mean it's efficient. It only is efficient for true believers. Sufficient for all, efficient for some. He's using a shorthand to say, not that Christ's death saves all people, but that God's heart was to save all people and that what Christ did on the cross was enough to atone to make up for the sins for all people for all time. And so that motivation goes even further for those who have faith in him. Keep reading verse 15. And he died for all. Look at this turn in application toward believers here. He died for all. That those who live, this is the believer's part, in other words, those who live by the Spirit, might no longer live for themselves, like the false teachers, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Notice, notice we don't yet, he says, live for others. We'll get to that part. That's the, that's the how do we create a context within which we can help prevent church burn. He says this, though. He died for all, verse 15, that those who live, that those who are made alive by the Spirit, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Our motivation is for God's glory, for him. 
who for our sake died and was raised. Paul is making um, a distinction here, by the way, between two types of people in the world. There are only two types of people in the world. Everybody who might be, quote, alive and breathing falls into the category of dead and alive, according to Paul here. There are only two types of people in the world, dead and alive. And you can differentiate between the two here by recognizing that alive people, verse 15, no longer live for themselves, but for him. On the other hand, dead people live for self. False teachers live for self. People who infiltrate the flock with their own unbiblical ideas, saying what is wrong is okay and was okay is wrong, are not in it for you. They're not in it for the glory of God. They're in it for themselves. And when we allow that to happen in some form or fashion when it comes to the non-negotiables of the Christian faith, then we have allowed a place where church hurt can happen easily. We'll get there again later on. Let the cat out of the bag a little bit there. So he says this, verse 15. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now here's how alive people live for Christ. So where it gets good. This is how alive people in Christ live for people. Verse 16. From now on, therefore, because it was Christ's love that compelled him to die for us so we could live for him. From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. And this is, this is a sweeping statement Paul makes here. And this is not merely just some good idea or lovely suggestion based on like moral codes or some sort of like long-standing Christian tradition of what good Christian living looks like. This is a principle for how to deal with all people based on Christ's love for us that we have experienced. Regard no one according to the flesh is a principle for how to deal with all people based on Christ's love for us. Regard no one according to the flesh means that because of Christ, we now measure no one according to the old human-centered standards. We were raised, all of us, from birth to be amazingly good at measuring one another horizontally in terms of our relationship as if you're smart, as if you're good at this, as if you're particularly uh, secure financially, uh, perhaps how you dress, perhaps um, those kinds of worldly standards of power and things like that. Every one of us from birth know well what those old standards and the measures of the flesh are. But he's saying because of Christ, we no longer measure people and value people according to those standards. We are something new and different and things are new. We don't say people are valuable because they're famous or smart or wealthy or powerful or they hold a particular kind of office. We say they're valuable. People are valuable because they're created in the image of God, which means they're able to hear from and to respond to and to have a relationship with the God of the universe who created them. Value comes from that for people. They matter to us because they matter to God, because he created them to have relationship with them. That is the ground of our value and worth of people. And it's so important to God that despite the fact that those people who we used to regard according to worldly standards they are so valuable to God that he died for them while they were in rebellion against him. Just like you and me. (laughs) 
just like you and me. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, the godly for the ungodly. So keep reading. Even though we once, verse 16, he does this typical Pauline thing where it relates it to Christ to come back to the relationship with one another. Even though we, weren't, we once pre-conversion regarded Christ according to the flesh, according to outwardly worldly standards, we regard him thus no longer. M- meaning even though we once regarded people and even Christ according to worldly standards of value and worth, we don't do that now. In fact, we weren't even able to recognize Christ according to the worldly standards. Like we missed it. <laughs> the Jews themselves missed the Messiah because they were according to worldly standards assessing him wrongly. So, everything we've sort of read up to this point is kind of typical Paul, um, complex argumentation. Uh, so let me try to bring the pieces together, bring this together for us and kind of summarize where we are at this point. And uh, if you'll hear this, <laughs> this is a pretty radical concept that can change how we interact with one another and with those outside of the body. It's a pretty radical concept that will change how we think about our interactions with people. Namely this. This is what Paul is saying up to this point. Those who, re- those who live for Christ regard no one in the old way, just like Jesus didn't regard us in the old way before he died for us. If you'll hear it, this is a radical concept that changes how we interact with people. Those who live for Christ now regard no one in the old way. Just like Jesus didn't regard us in the old ways when he died for us. Your interaction with fellow human beings must be based on the same exact grace you have received. When it begins to be something else, that's not gospel interaction. Let's keep reading. Lest we never get to lunch. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. A Christian's a brand new being, an entirely new in Christ creature, which means that there's a new order and a new way of thinking that is not the old way. Keep reading. The old's passed away. It's dead. It's gone. It doesn't even work anymore. Behold, the new has come. The word that he uses here for new in verse 17 is not just like new or next in sequence, like, oh, number two. That's good. I like number two. Um, it's, it's this concept of an entirely different uh, quality or value. It's a new category of thing. So the new has come, which means that Christians live according to this new order of things that no longer regards people according to the flesh. We value people because they can have a relationship with God. And that motivates us in our love for them. When you have interactions with people and you're realizing that my interaction with them, what I say, what I do, can be a piece of their relationship with eternal God changes your whole, your whole thinking. Instead of having to manipulate them for self or, or having people become sort of these band-aids for us in ways that only the Messiah can do, we can actually treat them the way God treats them. We'll keep going on that soon. 
He says this, verse 18, all of this, this whole process that he's been explaining, the whole process of death to life, flesh to spirit, all of that is from God, comes from God, has its source in God, just like the love of Christ at the beginning. This whole process of death to life is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And then it says this in verse 18, gave to us that same ministry of reconciliation. That is radical stuff. It's not rocket science, but it's radical. It's not hard to understand, but it's radical. God has given us the same ministry, the same work that happened in Jesus to us to bring him, to bring us to him. God has given us the work of bringing relationships together under this new order of Christ's sacrificial love for us, which means that God has given us this work of bringing relationships together under this new order of Christ's sacrificial love. There is literally not one thing you can think of in your life that will bring you satisfaction and peace and contentment and joy and sense of purpose that will outstrip this idea of being a piece of God reconciling people to him. Whatever your gifts, whatever you're good at, whatever your resources, whatever you think you were made for, I'm telling you, Paul says, the Bible says, the whole witness of scripture says, throw out your old job descriptions. This is what you were made for. If you're struggling with purpose, if you're struggling with a sense of identity, if you're not sure what you're supposed to do in life, if you don't know what your gifts are for, if you don't know what your resources are about, put them all under this heading of the ministry of reconciliation. Start again at verse 18. Let's read and keep moving. All of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is... And explains it further, verse 19. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins, their trespasses against them. And then entrusting to us that same message of reconciliation. Am I saying that you can die on the cross and save somebody from sin? No. <laughs> We're saying the message is that you can say that Christ did that and they can be reconciled to God. Which is why he says this. New job description. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, representatives of Jesus. God making his appeal through us. God makes his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. So how does this help us prevent? How does this help us prevent people being burned in church world? Let's come back to the question at the beginning. I want to answer that by reading um, an extended passage uh, from a sermon by C.S. Lewis. Um, C.S. Lewis was a Brit. This is a sermon from um, World War II in the 40s. And uh, C.S. Lewis was much smarter than all of us, so it might be a little bit hard to follow, but uh, imagine it in his British accent. That might help. (laughs) What he says here is a profoundly important thought that parallels our passage. And it'll help us to think and to see people from God's perspective. He says this, It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory 
hereafter. But it's hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or the weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken. He says, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible small g, gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other or not to that destination. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke, work, marry, snub, and even exploit. He says, next to the blessed sacrament himself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. The scriptures take seriously the idea that those with whom you interact from day to day that God made find their value and worth in being renewed through relationship with Jesus. And your interactions with them help toward that. If you'll see it. Friends, if we believed... If we believed that human beings can be new creatures, as Paul says, who are being made into the image of God and can have eternal glory and a relationship with God forever in heaven. If we believed that truth, we might pause before we speak. We might think twice about how we act. And we would live if we understood that people's value is eternal. We might live with a radical sense of the presence of Christ in those around us. We are not merely bearers of flesh walking around in costumes. We are bearers of the image of God with the presence of Christ in us to make us new creatures who could be with him forever. Everyone around us is a potential heavenly being created to spend eternity with God. And if we actually believed that, we would be kinder, We would be more thoughtful. Uh, We would be more careful with how we treated one another. And friends, if we are going to create a, a culture among us, a church environment, where people are given the space to become who God created them to be, we must see them and deal with them in ways that mirror how God sees and has dealt with us. We must learn to behave with a sense of heavenly purpose in our interactions with one another. If we understand what Jesus has done for us, 
we must learn to behave with a sense of heavenly purpose in our interactions with people. Let's pray, friends. Father in heaven, in the quiet of this moment, we ask for forgiveness for all the ways that we have manipulated the people around us to be about our glory and our purposes. Forgive us, Lord, for having a vision of our lives and our resources that is rooted in an attempt to save ourselves. Teach us from your scriptures. Make the gospel clear. Use the witness of believers who have gone before us so that we would give ourselves to this project that you've given us as ambassadors for Jesus, this ministry of reconciliation, so that we would see in our interactions with all people an opportunity for people to become closer to you, to take another step toward eternity and forever relationship with you. Father, give us your heart to value people. Give us your heart, Lord, to value those around us. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.